Hello everyone, welcome to Antibodies. This is our 10th episode in the Immunology 101 series, a segment where we try our best to teach immunology without overwhelming any of you guys. Joining me today is Dara from University of Paris Seclay. Hello. And Natalie Graham from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in Duarte, California. Hello. How are you both doing today? Pretty I'm good, doing and great. you? Yeah. Woo. I am doing fine, and I'm very excited to learn about B cells. So, for the audience today, we're going to talk about B cell development, starting from the bone marrow, the birthplace of all hematopoietic cells. Uh, Dara, lead the way with the discussion. Okay. Millions of these uh, B lymphocytes are generated in the bone marrow every single day, as you know, and exported to the periphery. The rapid and unceasing generation of new B cells occurs in a very carefully regulated sequence of events. One experiment, called a cell transfer experiment, in which genetically marked donor hematopoietic stem cells, which are the source of all blood cells of the erythroid, lymphoid or myeloid lineages are injected into a, an, the unmarked recipient have indicated that B-cell development from hematopoietic stem cell to mature B-cell takes, um, I'll let you guys guess, like how many days, weeks or months till the mature B-cells can be detected. A month? Hmm. Yeah, I feel like it would be like a, on a month scale. It's actually from one to two weeks only. The donor-derived mature B cells can be detected in the recipient by two weeks following the transfer of hematopoietic stem cells into recipient mice. B cell development begins in the bone marrow with the division of hematopoietic stem cells and continues through a series of progressively more differentiated progenitor stages to the production of common lymphoid progenitors, which can give rise to either B cells or T cells. Progenitor cells destined to become T cells migrate to the the thymus where they complete the maturation. Check out our T-cell development episode for more information on this one. The majority of those that remain in the bone marrow, however, become B-cells. As differentiation proceeds, the developing B-cells expresses on its surface a precisely calibrated sequence of cell surface receptor and nutrition molecules, and some of the signals received from these receptors induce a differentiation and of the developing B-cells. Others trigger the, prolifer- the proliferation at particular stages of development, and yet others direct its movement within the bone marrow environment. And these, signa- these signals collectively allow differentiation of the common lymphoid progenitors through the early B cell stages to form the immature B cells that leads the bone marrow to complete its differentiation in the spleen. For the scientists studying this process, the expression of different cell surface molecules at different stages of B-cell maturation provides a very useful experimental tool which, uh, to which to recognize and isolate B-cell poised at discrete points in their development. In this episode, we will follow the B-cell development from its earliest stages in the primary lymphoid organs, and then to the next episode, we will focus more on the generation of fully mature B-cells in the secondary lymphoid organs. Are you guys ready? Woo! Let's go! Let's go. Okay, thanks, Tara. I'll take it from here. Uh, for us to understand the trajectory of development in B cells, we need to look at the phenotype and functional changes that accompany the development process. 
we can characterize cells at different development stages based on what kind of molecules they express, just like Dara said. Think of them like how we can determine whether someone is old or not based on their hair color. Typically, as a person reaches past 60 years of age, they get strands of white or gray hair. Another example is the height of a person. We can see clear differences between an infant who is earlier in the development stage of a human to an adult who is a little ahead in the development stage. And we can differentiate them based on their height, even if we don't know anything else about them. For studying immune cells, the kind of markers or molecules we use to differentiate their development stage can be the proteins they express on their surface or the active transcription factors inside the cells. One such surface protein that is quintessential for B cell identification development is the membrane-bound antibodies. If you remember from one of our previous Immunology 101 episodes, immature B cells first express heavy immunoglobulin chain and then the light immunoglobulin chain. What we will learn from this episode is that actually B cells don't express their antibodies until a later point in their development. Hey, uh, can you tell me how the researchers found out about these molecules and uh, what kind of cells express them? There are like so many types of cells in the bone marrow. Yeah, most of the findings about different cell types have used antibodies or serum generated against specific antigens on bone marrow cells as tools to identify the antigens. With the specific antibodies in hand for experimentation, you can determine which of the surface proteins are expressed at the same time as other surface proteins and what kind of daughter cells arise from a population. All this information would allow the researchers to categorize cells. Then they could study each category of cells for unique functions and see if the cells that have, they have categorized are functionally different or not. Later on, researchers could also knock out genes for certain extracellular proteins and transcription factors to determine whether that protein is important for this category of the cell to develop or function. For example, scientists found out that there is a specific type of bone marrow cell that expresses a protein, what we now call the membrane-bound immunoglobulin. A discovery like this would eventually lead to more studies from which we can identify these immunoglobulin expressing cells, that they are distinct and they deserve to be their own category of immune cells. And of course, now we call these B cells, and we also know that they are unique cells with unique functions. Talking about B cells, this cell type itself is a heterogeneous population. Based on the availability of the antigen, inflammatory molecules in the local environment and the development stage, we can find a variety of B cells and a lot of ways to classify them. For today's podcast, we will focus on the type of B cells classified based on their development stage. One of the ways a cell with the same genome as any other cell behaves differently is by epigenetic modifications. These are changes that affect the gene product without changing the gene sequence. This is a process where the accessibility of genes to transcription factors is altered. So even if the cell has a particular gene, it may not be able to make a protein product. For example, adding a methyl mark to a gene could make its chromatin curl up to form a tight fold 
so that the transcription factors cannot access this gene anymore, essentially silencing this gene, at least temporarily. If we start at the hematopoietic stem cells, or the HSCs, as I will call from this point onwards, these cells decide whether they want to become a myeloid lineage cell, like a monocyte or a granulocyte, or a lymphoid lineage cell, like a B cell or T cell, by expressing a transcription factor, very important, remember that, it's called PU.1. It is observed that PU.1 expression is high, when it's high, HSCs turn into an early myeloid progenitor. But when the PU.1 expression is low, they turn into an early lymphoid progenitor. Another gene helping here is the E2A gene. It regulates the cell cycle in HSCs, so they divide only when they are required to. Can you tell me some more markers for identifying uh, HSCs? Yes, and that's a great question because first we also need to identify the HSCs themselves. There are two important markers for mouse HSCs. One is CKIT and the other one is SCA-1. It's also called LY60 or LY60. As the HSCs differentiate into progenitors, they start to lose expression of both CKIT and SCA1. So you know there is differentiation going on in these cells. Also, a lot of information we have about the immune system from is from mice, because obviously they're easy to perform experiments on than let's say humans. Uh, I have another question. Uh, what decides how much PU1 uh, the HSC will express? The answer is very likely the growth factors and chemokines that are present in the local environment of the stem cell. This adds another layer of complexity to this whole already very complicated process. Yeah, you, you were kind of blabbering all about this uh, epigenetic stuff, but you haven't told us anything important about it. Yeah, thanks for reminding me about uh, the <laughs> epigenetic stuff. Yeah, what I just told you about PU.1 has an epigenetic basis. PU.1 expression affects which kind of genes will be accessible. When I said high expression favors myeloid progenitor differentiation, it is because PU.1 directly or indirectly changes the accessibility of myeloid lineage genes so they can be expressed more and the cell takes that route of differentiation. Uh, you just used the word indirectly. What does that mean? Uh, for this episode, or actually generally, whenever I say indirectly, it will mean that there are several intermediate steps in this process, but I am skipping them just to keep the conversation simple and not to drive anybody nuts. <laughs> All right, gotcha. Since we are talking about epigenetics again, let me introduce you to one more transcription factor that affects lymphocyte development. It's called Icaros, spelled I-K-A-R-O-S. Icaros recruits chromatin remodeling complexes to particular regions of DNA and assures that lymphocyte-related genes are accessible. Once the right epigenetic changes have occurred, the progenitor cells will express RAG1 to TDT, or the enzyme we have talked about in the past, and other enzymes that are required for gene rearrangement in B and T cells. If you do not know what gene rearrangement is, 
I highly encourage you to listen to it to our one of the previous 101s where we go in depth to explain the concept of gene rearrangement in B cells and in T cells. Coming back to Icarus, Icarus also allows for the early progenitor cells to express this special molecule called interleukin-7 receptor alpha chain and will signal using this molecule to become more lymphocyte-like. Well, tell us more about this interleukin-7 receptor alpha chain. This is one of the growth factors we were talking about before. They can be external signals for cells to do or not do something. The interleukin-7, abbreviated as IL-7, uh, when the early lymphoid progenitors express the IL-7 receptor alpha chain, they become resp responsive to IL-7 signaling, which would further this differentiation process. The IL-7 receptor is actually made of three unique chains, the alpha, beta, and gamma. And it's this alpha chain that is this, whose expression is very well regulated by the cell. All right, that makes sense. Some of these early lymphoid progenitors can go into the thymus and later become T-cells. Some will stay in the bone marrow and will be fated to become B-cells eventually. But we'll get to that point slowly without skipping a lot of the middle stages. Coming back to the interleukin-7 receptor expression, when an early lymphoid progenitor expresses IL-7 receptor alpha chain, either in the bone marrow or in the thymus, we classify it as a common lymphoid progenitor. As, as the cell has lost even more stem cell properties and is becoming more and more specialized. So if I'm getting this right, the HSC first becomes an early lymphoid progenitor based on PU1 and E2A expression. Then it differentiates even more with Icarose expression that increases IL-7 receptor alpha gene transcription. So once you got the IL-7 receptor alpha gene expressed in abundance, that cell is your common lymphoid progenitor, right? Yes, that is correct. Once in the common lymphoid progenitor stage, the cells cannot become a myeloid cell at all. They, in the other words, there is no way back for them. The only path they can take from this point onwards is to be a T cell, a B cell, a natural killer cell, or a conventional dendritic cell. Since this episode is focused on B cells, let's see how this common lymphoid progenitor will become a B cell. The IL-7 receptor signaling, along with some other factors in the bone marrow, will indirectly induce this transcription factor called EBF1, or early B cell factor 1, which is required for later steps in the B cell differentiation pathway. Whew. That was a lot of talking from me. With that, <laughs> I have guided your journey from a hematopoietic stem cell to being logged into the lymphoid lineage and ultimately gaining the first properties of a developing B cell. Uh, Natalie, being the B cell expert among us, can you guide us on this B cell development journey from this point onwards? Uh, sure, yeah. So I'm here to tell you about what happens as soon as we get that first detectable you know, B cell. Um, and that's a cell that's committed to being a B cell, for sure. So the B cell enters a series of developmental stages that we name based on um, 
where the cell is in terms of its rearrangement of its BCR. That's that B cell receptor that eventually will become the antibody. Now the terminology is going to get like a little bit scary because there's two different systems for referring to all these different B cell development stages and uh, neither of them is very straightforward, but uh, we'll walk you through it. So probably the most commonly used method of nomenclature you're going to hear is something called basal nomenclature, and this was developed by Melchers and colleagues. So the very first bouncing baby B cell is called the pre-pro B cell. That's the precursor uh, progenitor B cell, uh, which kind of <laughs> seems like it means the same thing, but whatever. After that, you get your early pro B cell and late pro B, large and small pre-B, immature B, and mature B. This is a little confusing because all of these early B cell types are refused, are referred to using those terms precursor and or progenitor, which in normal English basically mean the same thing, but in B cell development definitely mean separate things. So now there's more than one way to skin a cat. So if you find the system of pre, pro, pro, pre uh, too complicated, then there is another way, and that's Hardy fraction analysis. I'm really glad you're going to tell us about a different classification method because that pre-pro alphabet soup nomenclature is not very convenient. Yeah, uh, I agree. So this is, you know, Hardy fraction analysis. It is named for Hardy and colleagues, the group who define the different stages of B cell development, uh, basically using the surface markers. And they're each named for, you know, a letter. This is great because, you know, A follows B, which leads to C and so on. And this is a little bit easier to remember than pre-pro whatever. However, this approach is defined based on the expression of surface markers, CD43, B220, IgM, IgD, uh, HSA, which you might also know as CD24, and BP1. So it is almost exclusively used in tandem with flow cytometry. Whoa, that's a lot of markers. <laughs> Can you tell me something about BP1, CD43, and HSA so it's easier for me to remember these? I'm, I'm very bad with names. Uh, yeah, for sure. So uh, BP1 is a homeobox gene product. Uh, homeobox is a whole family of genes, and they're often involved in the development of cells. That's HSA, or CD24, is a sialoglycoprotein. So that means it contains sialic acid, and very likely this allows the cell to interact with other cells or the extracellular matrix. And then CD43 that we talked about is also a sialoprotein, and it can help the cell to interact with other cells or the extracellular matrix to propagate a signal. So coming back, now I'd like to tell you more about how Hardy and colleagues defined this system. So flashback to the 80s, and the Ig rearrangement steps have pretty much been elucidated at this point using molecular biology techniques. Moreover, researchers knew that some of the important protein markers that were found in the bone marrow, but nobody knew kind of what they did or what they meant. So researchers did know that there was this marker called B220 that was a pretty reliable marker for B cells in the bone marrow. So Hardy and colleagues set to find out the series of markers on different B cell lineages to define the order of development. In case it makes it easier to remember for anyone, I think that the B in B220 stands for B cells, and the 220 is its approximation of the molecular weight in the kilodaltons, right? I mean, yeah, whatever works to remember this. 
uh, coming back, Hardy and colleagues define the order of development by sorting out different B-cell subsets by their expression of the above surface markers, and then they cultured them with stromal bone marrow cells to see what each cell type would give rise to. Uh, they also characterized the immunoglobulin rearrangement at each stage so that their nomenclature would be descriptive of the changes in the BCR at any given stage. So the system that Hardy and colleagues developed goes something like this. First, you're going to use flow cytometry to look at expression of B220 and CD43 in lymphocytes. Now, CD43 is also present on other cell types like T cells and granulocytes. So the CD43 positive, B220 positive group is the youngest set of B cells, which can further be broken up into the fractions A, B, and C based on their expression of BP1 and HSA, which is CD24. None of these subsets are expressing membrane Ig because they are still rearranging their heavy chain, but they express TDT, the RAG genes, and IL-7 receptor. So if you have HSA negative, BP1 negative, that's your uh, fraction A, your pre-pro-B cells. HSA positive, but BP negative, is fraction B, which is your early pro-B cells. And this is when DJ rearrangement of those heavy chain begins. And then if you have double positive HSA and BP1, that's fraction C, or your late pro-B cells. And they have just a little bit of EDJ rearrangement of the heavy chain going on. So that's, that's kind of where the first checkpoint of B-cell development takes place, by the way. After that, there's also an intermediate stage uh, you'll sometimes see referred to as C-prime, and that's your large pre-B-cell that is expressing a little bit more H HSA and CD24 than the C-fraction. Uh, on the flow cytometry diagram, it's just like a little, little extra nubbin on the population. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's, uh, so those are all your earliest B cell subsets, fractions A through C prime. So like I said, the first thing you gotta do is the B220 and the CD43. So let's go back to our BD B220 positive CD43 negative population. This is where we're gonna derive the second half of the Hardy fraction alphabet. And this is also a little bit later in B cell development. We define these three stages with IgM and IgD expression. So first, you're going to see uh, expression of IgM uh, low and IgD low. That's fraction D, and those are small pre-B cells, which are just beginning the VJ rearrangement of their light chain, but they're pretty much all done with their heavy chain. These guys now have pre-BCR, so they finally look like a real B cell. The next stage, um, is E, and so this is IgM high, but no IgD, and these are our immature B cells. They're done with everything, and this is the time for our second checkpoint. Fraction E is when B cells begin to fly out of the bone marrow nest to seek their B cell destiny. After that, B cells become fraction F, the mature B cells, which express both IgM and IgD, and they're no longer rearranging anything. If you find these guys out in the bone marrow, that means they're probably recirculating back in, taking a respite from their travels throughout circulation. Together, these markers help us see what's going on inside the cell without having to pop them open and do a bunch of PCR. Hardy fraction analysis is extremely useful for defining all of the different members within the very di uh, diverse bone marrow niche, and is also used to sort out those populations and examine which each one is doing um, separately. Yeah, going back to something I said before that we think of B cells as 
antibody forming cells, but it turns out they don't do that. They don't form antibodies until a very late stage in their life. Yeah. And I know we're going to summarize this part of the episode, this part of the episode later together, but can I confirm if I understood everything well about Hardy fractions here? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of detail, so tell me if it's correct. The early three B cell fractions are a subset of the B220 positive and CD43 positive cells, and they are classified on the basis of BP1 and HSA antigen expression, since these, these cells have got no membrane antibodies yet to identify them. Within this population, we got fraction A or pre-pro B cells that are negative for both uh, BP1 and HSA, then fraction B or early pro B cells that are HSA positive but BP1 negative, then fraction C or late pro B cells that are positive for both HSA and BP1. Then you talked about the intermediate stage C prime or large pre B cell. It's when they express a lot of HSA and BP1 more than fraction C. Mm -hmm. The next three fractions are derived from the B220 positive but CD43 negative cells that are supposed to be further down the differentiation pathway. At this stage, the B cells have rearranged their heavy chains. So instead of the 43, instead of the HSA and BP1 molecules, we're going to look at more B cell specific molecules like IgM and IgD. Within this fraction, these B220 positive 43 negative cells, fraction D or small pre B cells are IgM low and IgD low, meaning they have low expression of both of these. Fraction A or immature B cells are IgM high but IgD low, and this is one of the checkpoints you mentioned where they migrate out of the bone marrow. The last fraction is fraction F or mature B cells when they are are both IgMI, IgM high and IgD high. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that all sounds great. Um, let me tell you something interesting here. Um, when B cell malignancies arise, we can even define which developmental step went wrong that led to that cancer. For instance, we know that pre-B cells, and that's fraction D, can give rise to acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL, and mature B cells, and that's fraction F, can give rise to small lymphocytic lymphoma. Wow, I can't believe we just covered this portion. Hardy fractions have always been daunting for me, but you explained it really well in a very logical way, Natalie. Oh, well, can't help it. I'm, I'm just too good at this. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, I'll, I'll mention something about the leukemias you just talked about. I have been always confused about how are they naming these leukemia. It's very complicated, and now it just makes it more easy for me to understand it's all based on these B-cell stages. Yeah. Although there are some that are based on how they look, like I think the mm -hmm. Burkitt's lymphoma. Big, la large B-cell thing? And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that comes from the, the large pro B-cell, I think. Anyway. Yeah, that does yeah. come from there, you're right. Uh, Anyway, well, let's let's move on and talk about what happens to B cells after that maturation step. Dara, do you want to take it from here? Sure. So as much as we love B cells in this podcast, we need to talk about why sometimes our body needs to get rid of them in a process called B cell tolerance. Once the BCR is functional, functionally assembled, the receptor is tested for its ability to detect autoantigens. 
that would lead to the elimination of autoreactive clones. And those autoreactive B cells in the bone marrow could take three fates. Some of them would die from apoptosis, leading to clonal deletion, and others will edit their light chain and try to be nice and non-autoreactive, and some of them may survive while being autoreactive. They leave the bone marrow but become allergic to any further antigenic, antigenic stimuli. And this process is somewhat like how we how thymocyte tolerance is established in the thymus, where strong TCR or BCR stimulation leads to leads to cell death. However, there are no specialized cells like the metalloly thymic epithelial cells in the bone marrow that rigorously screen for autoreactive uh, B cells or T cells. So that's why the process is less strict for B cells than it is for T cells. So how do we know about this process then? Well, we know about this process thanks to the elegant experiments using transgenic animals that express autoreactive antigens and B cells that recognize those antigens. David Namazi, now in the La Jolla Institute for Immunology in the late uh, 1980s, they generated transgenic mice for both heavy and light chain specific for MHC molecule H2KK. They hypothesized that if all B cells in these animals would express BCR recognizing H2KK, the immature B cells will undergo some kind of negative selection to prevent autoimmunity if the mice also express the H2KK MHC molecule. To prove this, he had three experimental groups, all in which the B cells were specific in recognizing H2KK. The first group, mice whose cells expressed H2KD but not H2KK proteins. And the second group are the mice whose cells expressed uh, H2KK proteins. And the third group are mice whose cells expressed both H2KD and H2KK proteins, meaning that they were heterozygous. So wait, this would mean that B cells would be depleted in both second and third group where the autoantigen is expressed, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So Nemesis observed B cells in the polyphery of group 1 mice where H2KK was not expressed. In contrast, mice that expressed H2KK, no B cells were detected in the polyphery. And this would mean that there is a process of clonal deletion of autoreactive clones. The interesting part is with the third group, where mice expressed both H2KK and H2KD, they found that not all the B cells were deleted, even if the autoantigen were, were, uh, was present. Closer examination indicated that some of the remaining B cells in the bone marrow had undergone receptor editing that changed their affinity to recognize H2KK, so they wouldn't recognize H2KK as well anymore. Some autoreactive B cells, however, were still present in the polyphery, stating that not only B cells, not all B cells, un underwent negative selection. Um, so, could this be due, difference be due to the availability of the antigen? I mean, a homozygous H2KK mouse will express double H2KK than a heterozygous H2KK mouse, right? Yes, uh, that's possible as well. Immature B cells are particularly sensitive to BCR stimulation-mediated cell death. In group 2, there was H2KK available everywhere, so the intensity of the signal that the BCR received must have been high enough to kill all of those B cells. But in group 3, the relatively low expression of H2KK might have allowed some lucky B cells that did not encounter it enough to survive, and the take message from this experiment is that not all B cells that are autoreactive undergo 
deletion. Some can edit their receptors and some make it into the periphery organ uh, while still being autoreactive. But there are additional mechanisms of tolerance waiting for them that we'll, we will discuss uh, sometime in a future episode. Yeah, so don't you, can't you wait for the next episode? It's going to be so <laughs> exciting. Like that's when we're going to oh, discuss yeah. the rest of the process, which is B cell development in your secondary lymphoid organs, particularly your spleen in the next episode. So if you are excited to learn about class switch recombination and the germinal center reaction, and uh, do you guys know any other hype words about uh, um, uh, oh, cl- I don't know. Did I talk about somatic hypermutation? Uh, yes. Oh definitely. man, that's a, that's some good <laughs> stuff right there. <laughs> All right. So you, you you'll just have to come around for for next episode. It'll be awesome. So, uh, Natalie, how can we how can we summarize this episode so far? Yeah, for sure. Um, let's go through some bullet points. So one, in HSCs bound for a B cell fate, the transcription factors Icaros. Purine box factor one, that's PU1, and E2A participate in the earliest stages of B lineage development. Icaros recruits chromatin remodeling complexes to ensure the accessibility of genes. PU1 presides over a leukocytic, uh, leukocytic balancing act, and E2A expression regulates the cell cycle control in the HSC population. So, two. IL-7 receptor signaling, along with some other factors in the bone marrow, will induce EBF1, which is required for later steps in the B-cell differentiation pathway. Three, B-cell precursors, proce- uh, precursors progress through an ordered series of developmental steps in the bone marrow before reaching maturity. But two decades ago, there was no way to pick apart this mixed bag of cells. So Richard Hardy used one of the first multi-laser facts and started by dividing B220 bone marrow cells based on their expression of CD43, BP1, and CD24 or HSA. We now call these Hardy fractions. And then four, B lymphocytes can be rendered specifically unresponsive to antigen by experimental manipulation in vivo and in vitro, uh, tested by David Namsey and colleagues. and they found that very large numbers of autospecific B cells can be controlled by clonal deletion. Wow, that was a lot of learning today about B cell development, how they're (laughs) controlled from autoreactivity. I think this would be a good point uh, to wrap up the discussion. Thanks a lot, Dara and Natalie, for this wonderful uh, discussion. For our audience, if you're interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. You can find our blogs, journal clubs, and other podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com. With that, I'm your host, Jatin Sharma, signing off until we meet again. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.